Farm Talk on CFRU 93.3 FM. Welcome to another edition of Food Farm Talk where we celebrate food and honor those who champion the cause of food in society. Welcome to another exciting episode of Food Farm Talk here on CFRU 93.3 FM. I'm your host, Emily Duncan, and the show is also hosted by Abdul Rahim Abdullahi. On this week's episode, we'll be airing a, a seminar that was organized by the Errol Food Institute and Food from Thought Initiative at the University of Guelph. And today's seminar is on COVID-19 and lessons for the food system. We have a great selection of panelists uh, from all experts from the University of Guelph who will be speaking about what Canada's food systems can take away from the COVID-19 pandemic. This will be a two-part seminar. We're airing episode one this week and stay tuned next week for the second part. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to the host of the seminar, Rennie Vanacker, the Dean of the Ontario Agricultural College. Hello, everyone. My name is Rennie Vanacker. I'm Dean of the Ontario Agricultural College at the University of Guelph. Welcome to this uh, first seminar. This is a combined seminar of the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph and the Food from Thought Initiative uh, also at the University of Guelph. The intent of the seminar is to bring uh, expert perspective and insight uh, into questions about potential impacts of, uh, in the near and longer term of COVID-19 on Canada's food system and the myriad of questions uh, and implications that uh, may arise uh, because of that. The theme of today's seminar is, in fact, what can Canada's food system take away from uh, the COVID-19 pandemic? We have uh, a great panel today. Our panelists include uh, Larry Goodridge. He is the Leung Professorship in Food Safety and the Director of the uh, Center for Research in Food Safety. Uh, Jess Haynes, who's an Associate Professor in the Department of Family Re Relations and Applied Nutrition and one of the leads of the Guelph Family Health Study. We have Dana McCauley, who is Director of New Venture Creation in the Research Innovation Office of the University of Guelph and Mike von Massau. Uh, Mike is the OAC Chair in Food Systems Leadership and an Associate Professor in the Department of Food, Agricultural and Resource Economics uh, at the University of Guelph. The question I want to start off the panelists with is, uh, once the dust has settled on COVID-19, what key lessons will there be uh, for and how will Canada's food system be affected? Uh, I'll ask uh, each of the panelists to respond to this initially with a uh, about a five minute response, uh, and then we will have a chance for uh, questions and answers uh, after that. So the order uh, will be as the order of introduction. We'll start with uh, Professor Goodridge, then uh, Jess Haynes, Professor Haynes, uh, Dana McCauley, and finally Mike Van Masso. So 
Larry, if we could uh, start with you, please. Thank you. Thank you, and good morning, everyone. So my answer to the food systems question will be related to food safety aspects of that. And I think some of the key lessons and key questions that will emerge when this pandemic ends with respect to food safety will relate to some questions that I've heard from consumers. This includes, can the virus survive on food? And can we get it from consuming food? Now, the food safety agencies in Canada and the US and Europe have all been consistent in their statements that there is no evidence that this virus is foodborne. And there's been no evidence that anyone thus far has contracted COVID-19 from consuming food that may have been contaminated with the virus. That being said, I think there are lots of questions that remain to be answered. For example, we don't have good empirical data regarding the survival of the virus on food. We, we think that that's unlikely from previous studies done on other coronaviruses, but we do not have good empirical data for this virus. So I think there's research and questions that need to be asked about that. The same thing relates to takeout and delivery of food, which we are seeing is increasing because of physical distancing and other social distancing practices. Questions surround survival of the virus on, on surfaces. We've certainly seen some studies suggesting that the virus can survive on, on materials like cardboard and plastic, things that are used uh, as food containers for various periods of time from 24 hours to perhaps up to three days. So there's questions surrounding takeout food and, and what happens if the containers are contaminated. So I think uh, as with the survival on food, those are questions that need to be asked. Moving more directly to food systems, there are implications for food processing, uh, the food processing uh, sector. So we are seeing increasingly that, uh, for example, meat plants in both Canada and the US are, are being shut down because uh, employees are testing positive for the virus and so they can no longer sustain their activities. And there's some perhaps concern that food safety guidelines may may uh, begin to be relaxed uh, because of uh, lower profit and, and lower margins. And, and so there's concern about that. And the same thing applies to food retailing uh, where we've seen very good uh, um, practices put in place to, to deal with this, uh, this pandemic uh, with respect to physical distancing and so forth. But with respect to food safety, there could be concerns um, regarding whether practices will, will be sustainable um, following this pandemic, given the, uh, the economic losses. And then I, I would just like to finish with what I call indirect um, consequences. And that really relates to what happens in the home. So we've seen panic buying uh, of, of food. Um, that's a concern because people may not have enough storage space in their refrigerators, for example, to store the food properly. And that could actually lead indirectly to uh, people becoming sick with foodborne illnesses. So not necessarily this virus, but as a consequence of this, people could become sick with foodborne pathogens. 
Um, same with uh, other panic practices like washing fruits and vegetables with soap that, that we've heard of and, and you know, is, is something that is to be avoided. This can cause uh, illness due to consumption of soap. Um, and also um, leaving groceries in the garage in an attempt to, to kill the virus, which can also lead to growth of foodborne pathogens. So I think um, there's a number of, of consequences that will emerge from uh, this pandemic with respect to food safety. Uh, and those consequences will be as a direct result of the pandemic and, and there will also be indirect consequences. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Larry. Uh, we'll uh, now move to uh, Jess Haynes. Yeah, thank you. And Larry, that was so interesting. Um, I have searched some of the questions you identified. So for sure, those are of interest to uh, consumers. Uh, when I think about some of the key lessons we can take away from COVID-19, um, I think this pandemic has really underscored what we need to do as a society uh, to make sure that all Canadians have access uh, to healthy and nourishing foods. First, I think we need to make sure that every adult has adequate income to purchase the foods they need for themselves and for their families. This recent shock to our economic system has shown us that our social safety net as it is now uh, is not equipped to handle these types of situations. Um, it is leaving many people without access to adequate food. We have seen huge increases in the demand at food banks across the country and at the same time donations to these food banks have decreased uh, in part due to the higher demand for food at our grocery stores which Larry made reference to. So this COVID-19 outbreak has really reinforced the fact that emergency food systems like food banks are not a solution for addressing food insecurity. I would argue that instead we need an income-based solution. So a program such as universal basic income would help ensure that all Canadians have the income required to buy healthy food even when these shocks happen to our system. Um, and these shocks can be things like pandemics, but also major weather events or economic downturns. And a basic income approach um, could ensure that all Canadians can survive these shocks and survive these shocks without the need for all of these new sort of reactive stopgap programs that both the federal and provincial government has had to come up with over these next few weeks. Um, so the second aspect of food access that I think this pandemic has highlighted um, is the need to make sure all Canadians have the skills and resources needed to prepare healthy meals. Uh, a local example of this need is here right on the University of Guelph campus. So we have students who couldn't go home due to the outbreak, who are living on campus and who no longer have food service preparing meals for them. And a concern arose as to whether these students have the food skills required to prepare meals for themselves. And there's a number of great people in student services who are working to support these students with things like recipes and cooking tips and equipment. And that's all really great and helpful, um, but I would argue that our society should be set up so that we ensure that when students graduate from high school, they have this very important life skill of being able to prepare healthy meals for themselves. And I would argue to ensure that happens, I think we need uh, a national school food and nutrition program that can provide meals for students while they're in school, but also ensures that students develop food skills to support healthy eating for life, um, even through pandemics. Um, I think this pandemic has really highlighted the need for this government action to ensure food access for all. 
I think interestingly, the pandemic has also shown us what's really politically possible. We've seen really swift action from governments in response to the pandemic. So we certainly know that governments can act uh, as needed and when needed. So I would argue the next right step for the government is to ensure our population is protected from these future shocks to our system um, by ensuring adequate income and food skills uh, among all Canadians. Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, that's great. Uh, next, Dana, uh, if we could have your perspective. And if you could uh, just, uh, I think uh, I think you might be muted. So I'm so sorry, I screwed up the webinar. Um, I apologize for uh, for that. I was so caught up in what the other speakers were saying that uh, I was enjoying myself as a as an observer. But thanks for giving me an opportunity to join in, and uh, I, I have a lot of uh, shared opinions with with Larry and and Jess. Um, and I'm going to move though and, and talk about something that uh, that I think is is um, maybe uniquely my own in, in this space, and that's about product development and, and restaurants. Uh, for those who don't know my background beyond my great role at the University of Guelph, I, I was a chef and food writer for for many years and and uh, product developers. So I do a lot of work with um, both academic entrepreneurs now and entrepreneurs on, on the uh, other side of, of the, the divide out there in the real world. And I know that product development right now is um, been really thrown a loop. Uh, everyone a month ago was talking about plant-based, plant-based, plant-based. Now everyone's talking about bread. So, wow, what a shift in, uh, in consumer interest. And I think some of this is acute and, and temporary. But I also think that this is, uh, I, I'm hearing people calling it the Great Lockdown as a, a reference to the Great Depression, that there's going to be a massive economic ripple effect that will probably mean that consumers are going to be much more price sensitive than they were in the past. And for product developers who have been creating premium products with uh, specialty ingredients and specialty technologies that have been um, utilized to create some of these innovative new plant-based products, uh, I think that, uh, that we're already seeing this return to, to basics and, and, to, uh, and to people wanting to, to and needing to find affordable foods that will have broad appeal in their families. And for product developers and manufacturers, that could mean that they had need a whole new innovation pipeline when this, uh, this lockdown period ends and we hopefully start to go back to some normalcy. But to Larry's point, in our manufacturing settings, you know, we follow inline manufacturing, which means it goes from person to person to person. There's a lot of close contact and it's not necessarily uh, reasonable to, to expect a manufacturer to be able to completely retool and change their production system in a plant uh, because they, they just won't be able to keep their costs in line. There'll be inefficiencies and even potentially new dangers if you have to do a lot of walking in, in a manufacturing setting. So there's going to be a, an adjustment period there, which probably will lead to a lot of companies pulling the trigger on uh, technology that they didn't do before because the cost of wages versus the cost of that capital investment 
often made it more desirable to have inexpensive labor doing handwork versus technology. But I, I think we will see a lot more uh, systems that rely on robots and machines versus versus people. Uh, and I think that there's going to be a whole new way of thinking about critical control points in a manufacturing setting because all of a sudden uh, where just gloves and a hairnet was okay, I think now we're going to be seeing a lot more face coverings and a lot more rigorous uh, um, protocols around food safety. And that'll extend to restaurants as well. I was uh, on a call earlier uh, last week and there was a chef from Vancouver who's continuing to run his operation and he's doing something I thought was really novel. He's requiring all of his employees to sign a pledge that they will maintain social distancing inside and outside of the workplace. And he's giving, if for instance, they normally take the bus, he's giving them money to pay for parking and that kind of thing. And it stipulates right there in writing with a wet signature that if you break that social distancing rule, you will lose your job. So we're going to see a lot of really interesting changes in the way that restaurants market themselves. I think he's using that as a, um, uh, not just a marketing tool, but as a marketing tool to give assurance to the people who are feeling worried about takeout. And uh, there's gonna be a lot of disruption and probably a really awesome labor pool of, of chefs looking for, for jobs, which leads me to the other thing I wanted to touch on briefly, entrepreneurship, which of course is a big part of new venture creation we're going to see a lot more people who want to be entrepreneurs, who have the skill set, who've got the grit, who, you know, really have the will. But I'm sure that funds and backing from banks and investors is going to be tighter than ever. And uh, of course, you know, who's going to want to sign a lease when this could come in waves and, and you could have business disruption happening throughout a number of years. So I, I think home-based uh, businesses and businesses that are sort of single shingle are likely to be the types of entrepreneurship we see more of in the future. So yeah, this, uh, there's gonna be a lot of fallout in, in the areas of the food business that uh, uh, my job touches uh, due to COVID. It's, it's, uh, it's like all the balls are in the air right now and, and I'm just kind of waiting to see where they're going to land. Thanks, Dana. Uh, that's great. And uh, we will uh, go to Mike as last on the panel. So Mike, uh, what perspectives and, uh, and ideas uh, do you have? Well, uh, thanks, Rene. And uh, uh, one of the benefits of going last is uh, I can tie a few things, uh, tie a few things together. And, and uh, as with Dana, I've, I've enjoyed the conversation and actually heard some things that I hadn't really thought about. Yet. So uh, it, it piqued some thought. Before I talk about really uh, the food system in the future, I, I think it's worth mentioning that, that our food supply chains have shown some, some actually pretty spectacular robustness and resilience in the face of, of sort of an unprecedented shock. Uh, while, we did, while we did see some, some shortages on the shelf, I would argue those were demand-based shortages rather than supply-based shortages, and we're continuing to see the system catch up and we're continuing to see some stock at least uh, come onto the shelves. And, and, and to me, that's a profoundly good news story that, that while 
the system bent, it didn't break. And, and I think uh, it argues for, for some significant confidence in our food system uh, for Canadians. Uh, we did see some shortages, uh, uh, but they were, they were short term. I think we're, we're, we're seeing things catch up. Uh, the irony in the time of uh, the irony in the time of shortages was we also heard of some dumping of milk in in Canada and some plowing down of produce in Florida and other and other areas. And again, I would say these are short term phenomena in in uh, as the as the food system reallocates some of this supply. Uh, to different customers and to different processors. It's much easier to ramp down when supply uh, demand goes away than it is to ramp up when, when demand goes up. And so uh, we're, we're talking about different products. We heard stories of 40 pound bags of flour being sold in grocery stores. That's not what we usually buy. So we have to change packaging, the relative demand for things. We drink more milk uh, at home than we do in food service. And so we, we have to change a little bit from say cheese production to fluid milk production and that doesn't happen overnight. So many of these, uh, these overages at the production level were a function of perishable products and no buffer storage inventory uh, that, that caused us some grief. And so I think all of those things are gonna go away in a matter of days, not months. And we will see sort of that the, the reallocation in the new normal. That said, uh, I think we've discovered some, some what I would call pinch points in the food supply chains where we, where we might have a little bit more risk. As Larry mentioned earlier, we've seen uh, some plants shut down. There was a pork plant in Quebec that shut down. Looks like it's reopening. There's some discussion uh, about a uh, beef plant in Calgary where there are significant numbers of of staff who have uh, COVID-19 and, and dealing with, should we close the plant? Should we uh, change capacity of the plant? And, and processing really becomes that pinch point because the numbers are smaller. Uh, if in, an, in the unfortunate circumstance where an individual farmer may get, uh, get sick or, or, or have some other interruption, we've got a large pool of farmers uh, who will continue to supply. Uh, at the grocery level, uh, most communities, although not all communities, have several store options. And so, if we had trouble with one store, we would continue to have uh, we would continue to have access. Uh, but uh, at the processing level, we have considerably more more concentration, and that's where we might uh, potentially run into issues. Now, I would say again, we've seen significant resilience in the system. Uh, I had several people ask me yesterday. This plant in, in Alberta represents 40%, almost 40% of the packing capacity in this country. Does that mean we're, if it closes, we're going to run out of we're going to run out of beef? Uh, and I and I would say one of the the benefits of sort of the integrated food market, uh, the the food system that we have is that we're not a Canada-centric uh, beef system. Uh, we export and import both beef and cattle. And so while it represents 40% of the Canadian packing capacity, it doesn't represent 40% of the North American packing capacity. And so while we may see some short-term temporary sh shutdowns, and I think as Dana said, we may see some retooling in plants that reduce capacity 
I, I think right now there's not a lot of fear of long-term loss of, uh, of processing capacity and we can work around it. Uh, in fact, as processing plants close, it probably hurts producers more than it hurts consumers because it's much easier to reallocate processed products than it is to, to reallocate the raw products. And so at least in the, in the context of beef, we probably won't be throwing beef out. We may be feeding them at lower rates uh, to sustain rather than, than grow in order to allow us to wait until that processing capacity comes back. But I expect product will flow across North America. So we will continue to see uh, beef uh, and other uh, livestock products. And in fact, all food products on the shelves in the grocery store. But that said, uh, Processing is probably a pinch point, something that we, that we need to think about and think about how uh, uh, we can reduce those risks going forward. But again, the system, system adjusted. Uh, the last point I wanted to make was, was we, we will, uh, after we get through this and we will get through this, uh, have an opportunity to look back and say, where were there bumps in the road? And where were, uh, where were there things that we can do differently? And we need to do that in a holistic way so that we don't sort of rob to pay Paul. And, and there were some things, again, that were bumpy in this process that maybe we could change, but we need to think about what are the implications for other things in the system. I, I had someone ask me, well, should we have more smaller plants. So if one plant closes down, we, we, we don't run into the trouble that if a big plant closes down. Well, that is potentially an option, but there's a reason we have big plants and that's uh, efficiency. And maybe we, we shouldn't all worship at the altar of efficiency uh, and, uh, and, and think about that. But to deal with Jess's issue, uh, where she talked about access, efficiency keeps costs lower. Uh, and, and if we're worried about access, then we need to think about those trade-offs as well. So uh, having, a, a, having a fulsome uh, look at what went well and what didn't look, and then thinking in a holistic way about what we can do better, I think will we'll, we'll have some significant value. Thanks very much, Mike. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you very much for tuning in to the first part of the seminar on COVID-19 and lessons for food systems. Next week, we'll be airing the second part of the seminar. And as always, tune in to Food Farm Talk on CFRU 93.3 FM, Thursdays at 10 a.m., also available on the CFRU archives and all major podcasting platforms. I'm Emily Duncan, and thank you very much for listening. Take care. Ha 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 ha!
Thank you for listening to Food Farm Talk. See you next week for another exciting edition.